right, we're going to jump in. Um, if more come, hopefully we can just pick them up. If you want to take notes, uh, the little books on the hospitality desk are available for that tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Eternal and gracious God, we come before you tonight in need of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, our minds, and our souls to you and to one another. As we consider your word, help us to see your truth, your love, and your grace flowing throughout. Let us still continue to be the church, however flawed we may be, who make up the church. Let us be a community that points to you in this world that is so broken and hurting. Put before us always that we are a church committed to your mission by being people with open hearts, open minds, and a church with open doors. In your name we pray, amen. So I wanna just look at the agenda for tonight. This is where we're going. This is uh, kind of our roadmap. We're gonna start with the question of why now? Why are we having this conversation now? Why is it relevant? Why is it important? Then we're gonna look at how did we get here? How did we get to this point? What are the factors that brought us here? Then we're gonna look at how we approach the Bible. Um, and that is the question of interpretation. Then we'll look at the seven scriptures that talk about homosexuality in the Bible. And then we're just ever so briefly, and I wanna put this out there, ever so briefly, I have not done a full treatise on homosexuality and marriage because I will be honest, I was a bit brain dead this afternoon after writing everything else. So it is something that is relevant to the conversations happening today and it's just some thoughts for you to dwell on and then if we wanna have further conversation, you know where to find me. And then we'll end tonight with some questions and hopefully answers, but again, not gonna promise that either. As I've told some people already, you'll probably walk away tonight with more questions than when you started. And that's unfortunately how things go. Just a few notes on tonight's topic and lecture. This is only going to look at homosexuality. Uh, this means that I will not be covering uh, people who are transgender. They are included often in, if you see LGBTQ. Homosexuality has to do with attraction, right? Who are you attracted to? Transgender has to do with identity, who you believe yourself to be. Those are separate topics. While they are related, they are different. And so tonight, I'm going to focus on homosexuality. And so I apologize if you came hoping that I would touch on transgender. Um, it's just beyond kind of the scope of tonight. And the second thing I wanna talk about is something uh, that happened at annual conference this year. So this is a big topic in the church, which I'll get into briefly. Um, but at annual conference, uh, the pastors and delegates who were there were asked to identify where they were on a spectrum. And there were four basic categories. I'm gonna list what they are and then explain what they mean. And I want you to think about where you might be on that tonight. First, there was traditional non-compatibilist, traditional compatibilist, progressive compatibilist, and progressive non-compatibilist. Traditional was the term used for those who fall in line with the statement, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. 
So if you are someone who agrees with that statement, you would be a traditionalist. That's, all, that's what that term means. If you are someone who doesn't agree with that statement, or you are what is called affirming in other circles, saying that you believe that at least some version of homosexuality is compatible with Christian teaching, you would be what they labeled progressive. So on one end we have traditional, on one end we have progressive. Now the compatibilist and non-compatibilist means this is my viewpoint. If I'm a non-compatibilist, that means that I don't want to be in a church or worship with people who disagree with me. So on one end, you would have people who are traditional non-compatibilists, meaning I only want to be in a church where everyone agrees with the statement homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. On the other end of that spectrum, you have progressive non-compatibilists who say, I only want to be in a church or worship with people who agree with me that are affirming of homosexuality. In the middle are the compatibilists, both traditional and progressive. They are people who have those viewpoints but say, I'm okay being in a church with people who I disagree with. I, we are still compatible. We can still worship together and be the church. The Dakota's United Methodist Conference, and Chuck, you can correct me if I'm wrong, decidedly compatibilist, right? I want to say it was somewhere around like 80%. Uh, fell into the, one of the two middle categories, either traditional or progressive. But as a conference of the United Methodist Church, we had the value that we still could be the church together. And full disclosure, I am passionately compatibilist. I believe that to be a church with open doors, that we can worship together that there's a lot more that connects us than that divides us, and I don't believe that we have to agree to be the church. I say all of this because wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, or in this discussion, or what you're wrestling with tonight, there is a place for you here. Let me be very clear, we do not require in this church that you agree on this topic. What we do require is that you are respectful of one another and that you show love. So is that something that we can agree on tonight? Okay, good. So let's dive in. Why now? Why have this conversation now? This is a topic that's been prominent in our culture, especially since the Marriage Equality Act that made same-sex marriage legal in the United States as general attitude toward homosexuality has changed, as well as more information is learned about sexual orientation in general, challenges to the church's understanding of homosexuality and whether or not it is incompatible with Christian teaching are increasing. In the United Methodist Church, this is a divisive topic as evidenced in our special called session of general conference that happened in Kansas City in February of this year. The current stance of the United Methodist Church, as found in our Book of Discipline, which is our govern, governing document, is that homos, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Therefore, current pastors are not allowed to officiate same-sex weddings or host same-sex weddings on church property. 
Practicing homosexuals are not to serve as pastors. However, you might notice that not all United Methodists churches and conferences abide by those rules laid out in the Book of Discipline. Currently, the United Methodist Church has one openly gay bishop, Karen Oliveto, and there are several gay clergy members in different conferences who do not agree with the language in the Book of Discipline. In February, the vote to uphold the language in the Book of Discipline passed, but by a narrow margin, which shows that the church is split on their understanding of homosexuality. At the Dakota's annual conference that happened in June of 2019 in Bismarck, the conference voted on a resolution that affirmed the worth of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and stated that as a conference, we would work to eliminate the discriminatory language found in the Book of Discipline. This vote was passed with 64% affirming the statement. Again, what this shows is that there is great disagreement within our church on the topic of homosexuality. As we look to another general conference in May 2020 in Minneapolis, the topic will once again take center stage. In preparation for that and for whatever the future of our denomination holds, I believe it is time for us to look at this topic biblically and try to understand the different approaches to scripture that result in different understandings of homosexuality. It is my hope and prayer that greater understanding can help us preserve the unity of the church as we work together to be faithful to God, to live out the mission of creating disciples for Jesus Christ. Tonight is not going to be an argument for one way or another. However, I will be spending more time on the affirming side because I believe it is the lesser known arguments. Um, but I will be communicating kind of the different avenues of getting there. But if you are going, man, she's spending more time on this, I've done it on purpose because I believe that it's, people haven't heard these as often. And if it's newer, I wanna make sure that we're understanding it. So how did we get here? How did we come to a place where people in the church who are faithful who take the Bible seriously come to such different conclusions about homosexuality. Let's look at some of the factors that go into this ongoing conversation. As mentioned before, one of the biggest contributing factors to the prevalence of the debate around homosexuality today is the fact that homosexuality is understood differently today than it has been in the past. In biblical times, there was no understanding of a homosexual orientation, or of a person who was born with only same-sex attractions. There would have been no concept of a homosexual person, only heterosexual people committing homosexual acts. I'm gonna be saying this word a whole lot. <laughs> we will see some of those reasons as we explore the biblical text. Some include humiliation, some involve excess lust, some involve idolatrous worship, but what is consistent in the cultures that we find in the Bible is that there are homosexual acts, but they do not understand people to be homosexual. Do you see the difference there? In more recent history, there began to be an understanding that there were homosexual people, but their homosexuality was a mental illness or an impairment of some kind. 
Between 1952 and 1973, homosexuality was defined as a mental disorder, then a disturbance, and finally in 1994 was removed altogether from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Not until 1994. Since that time, same-sex unions and marriages have become legal in the United States, which begs the question of whether churches will do same-sex marriages. This change of the cultural tide has made this a topic at the forefront of our culture, as well as in our churches. So the question becomes, how do we approach the Bible? If we want to talk about this biblically, how do we approach the Bible? Since there have been changes in our understanding of homosexuality from a scientific viewpoint, this has led Christians back to the scriptures to seek answers to new questions that had not been previously considered or considered in light of the new information available to us. This new information doesn't change the words of the Bible, but it does change the questions asked and possible answers within the interpretive process. This is where the split happens in the church and where faithful Christians that are looking at the same text can come away with different answers. When we talk about what the Bible has to say on any topic, we can't just open it, look at one passage and say, uh, you know, read it at face value and be like, well, I know what God thinks, done. We have to do work. And that work is called hermeneutics. That's your first 50 cent word of the night, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. So you might think, why are we going to talk about interpretation? We should just read the Bible as it is rather than trying to make it more complicated. The truth is we cannot read the Bible as it is. We're incapable of that. We bring with it our own baggage because we are so far removed from the time that the Bible was written, the cultures in which the Bible was written, so we have to do work, interpretive work, to get back to the original intent and the original understanding of any passage in scripture before we can translate its meaning into our context. This is really what pastors do each week. This is to prepare sermons. I'll read a text. I begin to learn about the context and what was going on and why this may have been said in that specific way. I may learn about the original author and audience and how they would have understood it before I can do the work of translating it into a message that makes sense for us today here. That process is called exegesis. That's your second word for tonight. It's a big part of my education. The reason your pastors go to seminary is to do this work to learn to exegete properly. Now you'll see on the screen two words, exegesis on the top, critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. But on the bottom we have eisegesis. Eisegesis is what happens when exegesis isn't done properly. Eisegesis is an interpretation, especially of scripture, 
that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, bias, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text. So one is uncovering and digging what the text originally meant, and the other one is reading into the text your own thoughts and beliefs. And then that's when the Bible miraculously agrees with everything you already think, right? The debate around homosexuality often falls into eisegesis. And it also, a lot of people accuse other people of doing it. Well, this is what you think, so of course that's what you're going to find in the Bible. You're already committed to the outcome, so you're, you're influenced by that. That's the problem. We're reading the same Bible, but the ways we are interpreting it are different. So how to deal with this is to be open to the possibility that the Bible might not say what you think it says. Or that when we do the work of exegesis, it might not be as clear as you think it is. Now in our United Methodist tradition, we have a method that we use for hermeneutics called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, never laid out this quadrilateral as such, but he uses it as a method in the way he interprets the Bible and discerns God's will for his people on any number of topics. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is called that because it has four components, hence quad means four, that we use in hermeneutics. The first and most important is scripture itself. So these four aren't all on equal planes. Scripture, as you see, is the foundation, is the most important. However, as I have already mentioned, we interpret scripture, so the other three components of the quadrilateral are tools that help us in our interpretation. And we use them whether we are aware of it or not. So I think it's helpful to be aware of it. And they are tradition, reason, and experience. Tradition often refers to the teachings of the church and the theologians, what has been passed down over the centuries. Our Catholic brothers and sisters in faith are very heavy on tradition. If the church says it, then that's what I believe. So their quadrilateral might look a little different. Reason refers to our own ability to think or to rationalize. To answer this question, does it make sense? Don't underestimate the power of that question. Does this make sense? And our experience. Our experiences often flavor our interpretations more than we like to admit. So it is helpful to understand how our experience influences our belief. Tonight, I'm going to have you use the quadrilateral along with our other exegetical practices to help us understand how different Christians have come to different conclusions on homosexuality. We will look at what scripture says on the topic. We're going to look at all seven of the references that are found in scripture, consider what the church has thought and taught over history, and whether or not this might still apply. Use our reason to see if the biblical witness around homosexuality makes sense and applies to homosexuality as we experience it today, and whether or not our experiences of homosexual Christians impacts our conversation. 
Are you ready to dig into the Bible now? That was a lot of introduction, and, I, and you've been very patient, and I know that you've come for this part. So we're going to dig in. And so uh, there are seven passages that refer to homosexual activity within the Bible. Now I say homosexual activity because in the context of the Bible, in the cultures in which it was written, they would not have understood people to be homosexual. Rather, they were heterosexual people who committed homosexual acts for various reasons. This is an important distinction that we're going to see again and again. To read homosexual orientation back into scripture would be an example of eisegesis. It's anachronistic because that's not something that they would have understood. There are four passages in the Old Testament that refer to homosexual or attempted homosexual acts. We will be looking at them in pairs uh, because the passages overlap enough to warrant this approach. And then there are three New Testament passages that reference homosexual activity. We'll be taking two of those together as again they overlap enough to warrant such an approach. We're beginning with Genesis 19 and Judges 19. So let us begin. I want you to actually begin by opening to Genesis chapter 13. 13, 13. This is where we get the first, in chapter 13 is where we really start to under, see Sodom and Gomorrah. And 13, 13 tells us, and I'm reading out of NRSV up here. This is just the Bible I have with me. Um, it says, now the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is before the story that we have in chapter 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't get specifics here, but this is mentioned as Lot, Abraham's nephew. This is the Abraham, has a nephew Lot who traveled with him, and they split ways, and Lot settles in the area of Sodom. Even as he does that, Sodom already has a reputation of being very wicked and being sinners, but it doesn't get into specifics of what they are doing to be considered that. Then in chapter 18, we learn that God has already pronounced judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and has sent two angels. These two angels appear as men. They first go and visit Abraham and Sarah who welcome them, and then they find out that Sarah's going to have a baby boy named Isaac. That's this story. Those two visitors leave Abraham and head to Sodom. And while they are heading to Sodom, Abraham is pleading with God. Abraham already knows that God is planning on destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham knows his nephew Lot is there. And so he's like, if, if there are 50 righteous people, will you not destroy it? If there, and God says, if there are 50, I won't. And he keeps having this bargaining session with God, and it gets down to, if there are 10 righteous people, then will you destroy it? He says, if there are 10, I will not. And so the angels are sent to Sodom to discover if there are righteous people. That is the story where Genesis 19 begins Two angels in the form of men are coming into the town with the intention of staying in the town square. This is where it seems that when a visitor comes in that they go in order to find lodging, that someone will take them in. Lot greets them and urges them to come to his house. We get the sense that Lot knows it is not safe for them. 
in the square. The men of Sodom, scripture says, young and old soon surround the house, Lot's house, and demand that Lot bring out the two visitors so that they may have sex with them. Lot refuses, saying that the men are under his protection, but offers his two virgin daughters instead. That has its own problems. <laughs> the men tried to break into the house, but the angels blind them before they could find the door. In the morning, the angels tell Lot to take his family and leave, for Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed by God. How many of you have heard Sodom and Gomorrah referenced in the context of a discussion on homosexuality? Yeah, uh, the traditional interpretation of this passage is that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is homosexuality because the men come and demand not to have sex with Lot's daughters, who are virgins, but the men that have come in. So that's a homosexual act, right? So it is, it is there. God's judgment after this action implies condemnation of the homosexual acts. Therefore, homosexual acts are worthy of God's judgment and wrath. Some even interpret that all the men of Sodom were actually homosexuals and why the city was so wicked. This, for a long time, is what the church understood. But more recent scholarship from both very conservative theologians and progressives have come to understand the story differently. While it is true that the men of the city demand to have sex with the visitors that were also men, which is a homosexual act, it is not done out of homosexual desire. This is an act of aggression and dominance. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah do not treat strangers or foreigners well. That is an understatement. We can see evidence of this even in the conversation between Lot and the men of the city when Lot stands up to them. They remind Lot that he is also a foreigner in the land, and who is he to judge them? They will treat Lot worse than they plan to treat his visitors. Because their desire is not for sexual gratification in this story. It is about power. It is about dominance, and it is about showing someone where their place is. This isn't foreign completely to our world. We see this in prison, right? In prisons, you see men who are sexually abused by other men. We don't necessarily believe that these men are all homosexual because what is happening is people are getting put in their place. Let me humiliate you so that you know that I, I am the one with the power. That's what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. This isn't about I find them attractive. This is about they don't belong here and we're gonna make it clear. Really, this is a story about rape and gang rape at that. And if you think that this is um, somehow limited to Sodom and Gomorrah, let us turn to Judges 19. We did briefly talk about this story last summer when we 
uh, did our sermon series through the book of Judges. And this was the reason that I don't like reading the book of Judges. It is the story of Levite's concubine. Do you know what the word concubine means? Concubine is a woman who's not a wife, but she is kept for sexual pleasure. So this man goes in the story, you can go home and read it, but the basic gist is a man is traveling with his concubine who has run off and he's bringing her back home. And they come into a town where they intend to stay the night. Like the men in Sodom, they head for the town square hoping to be taken in by somebody. This time, an old man invites them into his house, again saying that it's not safe for them or they shouldn't spend the night in the square. The men of this town were also known as a perverse lot and surrounds the older man's house, demanding he bring out the visitor so they may have sex with him. The old man offers his virgin daughter and the visitor's concubine to them. It's taking everything in me not to want to comment, but I'm trying to stay focused tonight. In this story, however, it's different in that the men do take the concubine and they repeatedly rape her until the morning where she dies of exhaustion. Then as the Levite arrives home with his dead concubine, he cuts her body into pieces and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel saying, this is an evil thing that you have done. So there are a couple of differences from the Judges story and the Sodom story. In Judges, the men are satisfied to take the woman where the gentleman refused the foreigner. In Sodom, they did not. They, they did not want the women, but again, in Sodom, it was aggression. In Judges, it seems that it's something else. It suggests that they're not actually homosexuals. They were just willing to commit homosexual acts, just as they were willing to commit heterosexual acts. In this story, they are still demanding sex that is not consensual. They still want to rape the man and are satisfied in raping the concubine. It is their lust that is controlling them. And this makes sense because another one of the beliefs around homosexual acts at the time was that it arised out of excessive lust. So people who couldn't control their sexual desires would try to gratify them in any way possible, and one of those ways would be to have sex with a man as he would with a woman. Again, there's not an understanding of exclusive sexual orientation. It's just kind of this I've got so much lust that it's just whoever's in front of me is going to get it, basically. Does that make sense? That's what's happening in this story. So now I want us to look at using the quadrilateral, and I want you to take some time to reflect on these two stories. I want you to reflect on some of this that I've shared exegesis around the context of these two scriptural passages. I want you to reflect on what is the tradition that you grew up with, that what did that teach you about these stories and how that has shaped you? 
I want you to reflect on what, does it make sense what I believed? Does it make sense some of the arguments that Katie has presented? And then how does the experience of, of you, your experience today around homosexuality relate to this story? So we're just gonna take a few minutes, jot down some notes. I'm not gonna ask you to share them. If you need kind of someone, to, if you have questions, just raise your hand and I'm gonna shut my mic off. But I want you to begin doing, using the quadrilateral to do this work for yourself. So again, use, reflect on these four things. How does the context and how you've read scripture influence your understanding? Does it make sense? How did I grow up? What was I taught? How has that influenced how I've read this in the past and how I hear it now? And how does my experience shape how I'm hearing? now. The sins that are mentioned in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament have to do with um, inhospitality, which is, to me, not a big enough word. When I think of being inhospitable, it's like I didn't put out the fine china when people came over. Like, that's what I have in my brain. Their understanding of inhospitable is you don't belong here, get out, or we're going to do something terrible to you. Also, um, other things. And so, for the Old Testament, the Old Testament and the people of that context, they knew Sodom and Gomorrah, their sins, not to be primarily sexual in nature, although it was included, because I don't think anyone in this room would say that gang rape is not a sin. It is. Um, but that this story was really about how you treat other people. So I apologize. It was in a different draft of this lecture. So. <laughs> from our scripture and from the writings, what, what we see is they just have no concept of um, an exclusive attraction. And so uh, homosexuality and homosexual acts are done by people who also have heterosexual relationships. It's not to say that there weren't homosexuals during that time. They wouldn't have understood them in that way. Um, but it comes out of, out of the scholarship that we read. Even out of these, we'll, we'll see um, that homosexuality, the act of it, is always seems to be tied to another sin that it's connected, and so because of this sin, that's why you're doing this thing, and it doesn't have to do with because you are born to be attracted to this, you know, person. All right.
are we ready to move on? We're going to move on to Leviticus, and there are two verses in Leviticus, and they basically say the same thing, so that's why we're going to treat them together. So I want you to turn first to Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus is full of rules, and in Leviticus 18 is rules regarding sexual relations. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. No matter what translation you read, it's not positive, is it? No. And if you, if you just want to keep your finger, if you're using a, a, a paper Bible, and jump over to uh, 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So it has that same core verse. This one adds to it the punishment. So let's look a little bit at the context. There are hundreds of laws found in the book of Leviticus that make up the laws for the Israelites to keep their end of the covenant with God. The rules range from how to govern, how to settle matters in court, uh, what to wear, what to eat, who to associate with, sexual prohibitions, and the list goes on. The rules themselves are quite clear, but what is not as clear is whether or not they still apply to Christians, and that is where the differences in interpretation can be found. So let's look at the exegesis. We're going to continue to remember that in the Old Testament that there's no concept of sexual orientation, so this would have been referring to people who would have had heterosexual encounters and even been married rather than people who exclusively chose to have same-sex relationships. The word that is so powerful in this passage is that word abomination, right? This is the favorite verse for people in picket lines because it's succinct, it's powerful, and it's clear. Homosexuality is an abomination. It's a powerful word, and in our context, it's reserved for things that are incredibly offensive or evil. In the Hebrew context, the word meant something more akin to unclean, taboo, or forbidden. Other things that were considered an abomination include sowing a field with two different types of seed. That is an abomination. Weaving cloth from two different types of fiber. If I were to check your tags right now, how many of you would be an abomination? Eating foods like shrimp, pork, which would count me out, I had pork tonight for supper. It was delicious. Rabbit, crab, and many kinds of birds. When we understand it in its context, it takes a bit of the sharpness of that word away. The major question that Christians have about these two verses is whether or not they apply to us. The reason this question is relevant has to do with the New Testament. So I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. 
Acts is in the New Testament. It follows immediately the Gospel of John. And turn to Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts is the story of how the early Christian church came to be. Acts chapter 15 is uh, the council at Jerusalem. There's a major uh, fight that's happening in the early church. Nothing that we can relate to, right? And it's over the topic of whether or not Gentiles needed to adopt the Jewish laws in order to be Christian. In particular, do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian? And there was a big fight about this. Peter was on one side. Peter was the preacher to the Gentiles. And he says, we shouldn't put this yoke upon these new believers because they are saved by grace, not by the Old Testament laws, purity laws of Israel. 19 and 20, therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols, from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled, and from blood. So in this decision that the early churches made, they are saying that some of these laws found in Leviticus are no longer applicable to Christians because they are under a new covenant through Jesus. However, they do say that some of those laws still should apply. And they, they list uh, things that are polluted by idols, fornication, things that have been strangled, and from blood, which is still actually one of the food laws. A kosher diet requires that you drain all the blood from the meat before you can consume it. However, let's look back in Acts chapter 10. In chapter 10, we have the story of the Apostle Peter being invited by a Gentile by the name of Cornelius to his house. Before Peter, Cornelius received a vision to invite Peter, Peter receives a vision before he's invited by Cornelius, and his vision is that a large sheet from heaven is coming down, and in it were all kinds of animals previously considered unclean. And then a voice says to him, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. So what is that saying? His vision is telling him, these foods that you once considered unclean from the laws in Leviticus, I am now saying to you, are clean. They are good for you. Peter then takes it a step further and understands that when Cornelius invites him into his house, which was against the laws for Jews to associate with Gentiles, he accepts the invitation because he understands that what the vision was saying was what God has made clean also included Cornelius. And so it's not just food in Acts 10, but there seems to be a larger application here. But the question then goes back to these laws found in Leviticus. How can we know the things that uh, have been declared clean under the New Testament and the things that are still applicable? We still teach the Ten Commandments, right? There are still things in the Old Testament that we find that are still valid. 
And in Leviticus, the laws can be separated into what we call moral laws and ritual laws. The argument is that ritual laws are no longer applicable for Christians because they were designed to set Israel apart from the nations around them. God was working through Israel to bless the world. Israel had to stay holy. Moral laws are things that are for all time always applicable. If we read some of the other sexual prohibitions in Leviticus, they are still things that we abide by today and think of as good things to follow, like don't have sex with your aunt, you know, or your daughter-in-law. Those are actually in there. We would still say, yeah, good law. Let's follow that one. That's a moral law. So the question becomes, are these two passages that we have in Leviticus, are, do they fall in the ritual category or the moral category? Some say that because the Jerusalem Council of Acts includes fornication, which is one of the sexual prohibitions, that things of sexual nature were, were moral laws and therefore still in effect, and would say then that Leviticus 18 and 20 would still be in effect. Others say that the word abomination connects these verses to ritual laws. The list I gave earlier of the different abominations were ritual laws that were designed to keep Israel set apart from other nations. And they also would argue that the homosexual acts were part of other nations' worship of idols in the pagan temples. And so they would see that as if you committed that kind of act, it would then be connected to idolatry, which is like the number one no-no in the Ten Commandments. That's my official, the number one no-no. <laughs> If that is the case, since salvation is available to all through Jesus Christ rather than the Israelite nation and purity laws no longer apply, then these passages wouldn't apply. That is where people differ. That's where they come down on this one. Either these two passages are moral laws and apply for all time, or they fall under the ritual law category and through Jesus no longer applies because Gentiles no longer have to abide by the ritual laws of Israel. That's the crux. That's where people are, are interpreting this differently. So guess what I want you to do? Again, I want you to look using the Wesleyan quadrilateral what about what we have explored in this scripture? How is, what are you thinking on that? Does it make sense? What has your tradition taught you? And what does your experience say? Also remember in, in Leviticus 20, the punishment for lying with a man as with a woman is to be stoned. But also there's punishments for your children that if they disobey you, guess what? You stone them. Yeah. The Old Testament is harsh. It's harsh. How does this relate to the conversation today around homosexuals and homosexuality? Those are the things I want you to ponder.
This one is like, the words themselves are very clear. The question is, does it still apply? It's not, does, does this mean what, what it seems to mean? It does. But it's whether or not, does this apply? That is the question that people are asking. As I mentioned at the beginning, you're going to come away with more questions probably than answers. What I am trying to do is give you, um, to the best of my ability, the arguments from what I can see. Yeah, that is, that is something that, that we had been talking about. Um, because if they're married, then it's adultery as well, right? That's the New Testament. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That is not as clear um, contextually in the Old Testament. Well, let's move on to the New Testament. Those are the three passages that reference homosexuality in the Old Testament. We're moving on to the New Testament. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. All three of the references to homosexual acts comes from the Apostle Paul in his various letters. There are no references to be found from Jesus or in the Gospels. So I want to give a little context on, on Romans. The first passage is from the book of Romans, which Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. The first chapter, and really the first three chapters of this book, Paul is describing people who knew the truth of God, but exchanged it to worship something else. 123 says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a, moral, a mere human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, since the Romans have chosen to worship something other than the one true God, God gave them up in their lust, the lust of their hearts, to impurity and degraded their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped a creator, creature rather than the creator. God gave them up to degrading passions. Women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. Men gave up natural intercourse with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There's a lot of repetition in this, isn't there? Saying the same things over and over again, there's a pattern. The main issue here is idolatry because the Romans gave up worship of the one true God to worship something created. God gave them up to their lust and degrading passions. In some ways, this is reminiscent of Leviticus because there are similarities in context and belief. In the context of Leviticus, homosexual acts were a regular part of idol worship, and the same is true in Rome. This passage is primarily about idolatry. And since these people chose to worship another god, God gave them over to the nature of that worship, degrading forms of sex. Secondly, and I feel like uh, I keep saying this, but this passage is strongly influenced by the belief that homosexual acts were done by heterosexual people who do not have self-control especially when it comes to sexual pleasure. 
By definition, homosexual acts are an expression of too much lust and too much debauchery. That's how they would have understood it. So we see this when talking about the lust of their hearts and consumed with passion. In Roman culture, homosexual encounters were seen as an acceptable outlet for sexual pleasure, whether a man was married or not. To have intercourse with another man in Roman Greek culture did not count as adultery. The marriage bed was for procreation this was for pleasure. It was a safe way on the side, is how they saw it. The words natural and unnatural that are used in this passage. How does Paul understand what is natural and unnatural? What does he mean by that? Traditionally, this has been understood as heterosexual and homosexual relations, and the argument there is that it's natural because men and women's parts just sort of fit together, uh, and men and men's parts don't. The plumbing just doesn't work is what, you know, the one of the ways you can say it, I guess. <laughs> um, some argue that nature supports heterosexual relations biologically, although the biological argument isn't actually something that is explicitly stated in scripture. However, if we look elsewhere in Paul when he uses the language of natural and unnatural, we find out that he's probably actually referring to what's culturally acceptable. For example, he suggests that men with long hair are going against nature, which when I told Jason that last night, he was super thrilled. Although what he's really saying is that it goes against the cultural norm of the day. And this hasn't always been the case. If we look in the Old Testament, who grows his hair long because of his devotion to God? What? The Nazarenes. Yeah, Samson, right? So this isn't a for-all-time thing here. So it is a cultural He's saying that it's natural because this is what is accepted. Um, so what does that have to do with verses 26 and 27? In Paul's culture, the natural order of the day was a powerful form of patriarchy. And one of the biggest offenses to a man sleeping with another man is that one of them was put into the receiving position in that act, the place of a woman. That would be very degrading for a man to be in the position of a woman. A woman has no value, no honor. It would go against culture, and it would go against nature. <clears throat> I went through that one really fast. And I know if your brains are anything like mine after going through this, I'm sure it's a little bit like jelly, and that's okay. The big things out of Romans that that are the arguments here. On the one side, it's very clear, right? There's, it's because, because you have gone away from God's intention, God has given you over to these base desires that are not part of God's will for you. Therefore, homosexuality is not part of God's will. That is one argument. The other argument is saying that this is really about idolatry remembering that homosexual acts were understood to be an outflow of excessive lust and couldn't be controlled, that this natural and unnatural isn't 
a biological law, but a cultural one. So people who affirm homosexuals today will say that this doesn't really describe same-sex relationships as understood today because we believe that it's an orientation, not some unbridled passion that causes people to ha have same-sex encounters. So, the, so what they would say is that this doesn't really fit perfectly one-on-one -on -one with what we experience today. Again, I want you to spend some time thinking through what makes sense to you? What is your experience that is informing what you're thinking? What has tradition said? The tradition that you grew up in? And how would you understand the scripture in light of that? The final two passages we're going to deal with together as the main interpretive points are the same. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, verses 8 through 11. The context, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, which is the epicenter of Greek culture. And the church was struggling with what these new Gentile Christians were allowed to do and not allowed to do in their new faith. And 1 Timothy is a letter Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, to help prepare him for ministry by giving him guidance on many different things. This passage is going to focus on two particular words that show up uh, often that get translated as homosexuals. Um, and one word in particular shows up in both of these passages. So we're going to look first at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. This is a list that Paul writes of wrongdoers that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Inheriting the kingdom of heaven is another way of understanding, gaining eternal life, or being claimed by God. These people, as long as they are continuing in these wrong actions, do not have a part in the kingdom of of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those are really inter interchangeable phrases. This list includes fornicators. So those are people who have sex outside of marriage. Idolaters. We've seen that a couple of times. That's pretty important to God if you're worshiping other gods. Not a good thing. Adulterers, married people who have sex outside of their marriage. Male prostitutes, at least that's how it's translated in the version I have. Sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and robbers. Jumping over quick to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, it's another list. And this is a list that is contrary to sound teaching and 
also contrary to the gospel. And this list includes some of the same words. Lawless, disobedient, godless and sinful, unholy and profane, those who kill father and mother, and then murderers. I'm just going to pause for a second. That seems like the same thing to me. Anyway, slave traders, liars, perjurers. Oh, I forgot. I got it so caught up. Fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers. That would not have made sense if I forgot those. The word sodomite here is the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians. And so that is one of the words we're going to look at. Did you catch the word sodomite? Where does that come from? Sodom. Yeah, the very word comes from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The two words in question, uh, if you look in the first Corinthians, I'm having you flip all over, I apologize, uh, are the words that are translated male prostitute and sodomite. In Greek, those words are malakoi and arsenokoitai. You got that, right? Malakoi is the word translated as male prostitute. In older versions, we see this word translated as effeminate, which is interesting to have that description as if you are effeminate, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's probably not something we've ever thought about before. The root of the word malakoi in Greek means soft. It referred to things that were feminine, but it also was used as a derogatory term for teenage boys that were used by older men in a sexual practice called pederasty. This was common in Greek culture. This is, one, it's awful, and I don't like thinking about it, but the practice of the time was that Teenage boys from about the age of 11 to 17 were used by older men to have sex with, to gratify their sexual pleasure because the men of that culture did not view their wives that they owed their wives anything. Wives, again, are there to, pro to have children with. They are property. We see that when Paul talks about, um, you know, husbands, love your wives, and they're like, what? No, they had no interest in that. They had no interest that husbands had duties to their wives. Husbands didn't believe that. And they practiced this pederasty. So, from, so males from the ages of 11 to 17 would, would basically be taken by an adult male to do with as he pleased. And then when they turned 18, they became the adults and then did it to... It was just this vicious cycle. So one of the, the potential translations of Malakoi or references is these teenage boys. Which just, ugh. Uh, so in some senses, this idea of male prostitute isn't actually too far to, to use that translation. Except that it was a boy not a prostitute, and they weren't getting money for this. 
It should be noted that malakoi wasn't exclusively used for these young boys caught up in this practice. Um, it could be applied to any male who was self-indulgent and a slave to his passions, which means that even actually a womanizer could be called malakoi because if he was a slave to his desire for women and for fulfilling his sexual pleasures with women, then they would say that you are out of control and you are malakoi because women are out of control. They're crazy. Again, this, this has a backdrop of patriarchy um, that is just a bit foreign to us today. So then let's look at our senokotai. So that was malakoi. The second word is our senokotai, and that's the word that gets translated, um, as I read it tonight, as sodomite. Or it gets translated as men um, who abuse themselves with mankind. Uh, it, it is a compound word that comes from two Greek words, male and bed, with the idea of males who um, are in bed with other males. Um, most likely, Paul is the one who came up with this word, and, it and he probably got it from the Greek translation of Leviticus, because those are the words that are used in the Leviticus passages that we talked about. It does get used outside of Paul, however, but what makes it difficult when a word is very rare is to, ha is to have a clear sense of how it was used in the time. Um, but there are some uses of the word after Paul that seems to expand this understanding of not just sexual things, but of economic exploitation. Um, and so this idea of people who exploit others for their own sexual or economic gain, uh, which would be in line, again, with this practice of pederasty. The arsenokoitai would be the adult side. So it's very possible that Paul is condemning this practice, saying that both the young man who is receiving and the older man who is taking advantage of the situation will not inherit the kingdom of heaven for being a part of this. What's interesting, though, is this word arsenokoitai shifts in how it has been translated into English over the course of time. So I just want to look at this really quick. In 1525, it's translated abusers of themselves with the mankind. I would be, it would be very difficult to read that Bible now. 1587, translated as buggerers. 1729 as the brutal, 1755 as sodomites, 1899 as liars with mankind. I'm gonna pause right there. All of these are again references to the act of homosexuality. They are people who commit this act. There is a shift that happens after 1899 that we see in 1946, the Revised Standard Version is the first time we see the word homosexuals. 1958, pervert. 1966, homosexual perverts. 1973, homosexual offenders. And 1987, practicing homosexuals. Does anyone catch what the shift is here? 1946, it's now about people who have an orientation a whole subset of people are now 
not going to inherit the kingdom of God, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. It's a pretty subtle but pretty important shift. And then we see in 1987, practicing homosexuals. So they've caught it by then saying, before, if, when you just have homosexuals, it doesn't matter, matter if they're sexually active or not. But 1987, those who are sexually active, homosexuals, back to practicing, back to the act. These translations have inserted the concept of orientation into the scripture, which is eisegesis. It's applying what we encounter today to what Paul was writing about, but it's not clear that they are the same thing. The question becomes, for the first Corinthians and the first Timothy passage, is what Paul is condemning a specific type of homosexual encounter that he, or how he understands what homosexuality is based on what he sees in the culture? And is that the same thing as what we see today? Is that can that be translated into our culture that this pederasty is the same thing as people seeking marriage equality? Is there enough overlap that it, that it is the same? Or is what we're talking about today different and therefore what Paul is saying is contextual? That is where people will answer those questions differently. And so again, I want you to take just a couple of moments to jot down what's going on in your brain. All right, at the beginning I, I said that I wanted to very briefly, and I want to highlight that, I mean very briefly, touch on homosexuality and marriage. And the reason I feel like we should at least touch on it is because it is um, a big part of the debates that are happening within the church. The big questions are, is homosexuality a sin? Can homosexuals get married? Can pastors officiate a same-sex marriage? And can practicing, i.e. married homosexuals, become pastors? The difficulty in this question lies in the fact that the biblical witness does not have a concept of orientation of homosexuality, and therefore no concept of two people exclusively living a life of homosexuality together. There's just not a direct reference to that in scripture that we can look at and point to and be clear about. However, we do have some understanding of marriage throughout scripture that raises two primary questions for you to ponder. Is the marriage covenant exclusively between a man and a woman? And can a homosexual marriage fulfill the purposes of a marriage as ordained by God? I'm not going to flesh out this conversation in greater detail, but I just want to highlight some of the arguments that I have encountered as I've been reading. Position 
the position that marriage is only between a man and a woman. This is the current position of our church in the United Methodist Church and many other churches in the country and around the world. Some of the arguments for this view come from the book of Genesis that God created Adam, a woman, as a helper and mate, that only male and female relationships can fulfill the mandate given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, that Jesus refers to the Genesis passage that states, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. This might imply that Jesus also understands marriage to be between one man and one woman. We see in Paul's writings concerning church leaders that a man should be the husband of one wife, again pointing to the nature of marriage between males and females. Those that argue for marriage equality state that God created for man a helper because it was not good for him to be alone, and, it doesn't, and that Adam doesn't look primarily at the differences between he and Eve, but notices the things that are the same about them. Those that argue for same-sex marriages argue that it is also not good for them to be alone, and that they should be allowed to pursue relationships in the same manner as heterosexual couples. Secondly, to the argument that only heterosexual couples can procreate, this is true, but not all heterosexual couples can or choose to procreate, and yet they are allowed to marry. As for Jesus' quote, at the time there is no such thing as marriage between same-sex couples because homosexual encounters are not in the context of loving, committed relationships, but are seen as extreme lust, power, or exploitation. Therefore, Jesus is commenting on what is Again, this is the argument, not necessarily what should be in the marriage relationship. And finally, they argue that the true purpose of marriage is the reflection of Jesus' love for the church and that homosexual couples can imitate this kind of covenant as well as heterosexual couples. I know I went through that really fast. My guess is that heads are spinning. These are just some of the things to ponder. More of the conversation around this topic is available. There are books that have been written. There are many resources. If you're interested in diving into any of the things that I touched on tonight, um, please come talk to me. And um, I will share with you kind of the different resources that I have used, um, but also that have been re recommended to me um, from the various viewpoints. Now, I just want to have a couple minutes uh, for burning questions. Um, I, I know that I did not go into these things very deeply because I was trying to cover a lot in a short amount of time, although this is a lot of talking for me. My goal is to share what I've encountered as arguments in the hope to foster understanding between people it is not my hope to convince you one way or the other. I fully expect that you're going to leave with more questions than you came. And remember that I don't require that we agree, that you agree with the person sitting next to you to be a part of the life of this church. We are fully committed to open hearts, open minds, open doors. This should be a safe place for you to wrestle with this and to work out what you believe. And I'm committed to loving you through that process. So just know that I am open to questions. I cannot promise that I can answer them. Just realistic expectations.
Any burning questions? Was some of this information new to you tonight? Yes, yeah, so, so there's, there's gonna be a process now where you're gonna have to go back and go, one, what did she say? Which I did write this out, and so we, are, we have recorded it, so you can go back and listen. Uh, if you would like to be able to read what I have written, I can send that to you as well, if that would be helpful. Um, a lot of, some of this was new information for me as well. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't as well. Um, but that's why we're the church. We do this stuff together. So, okay. <laughs> Let's close with a word of prayer. Loving and gracious God, I give you thanks for tonight and for the people that have come for the questions that they have, for the questions that we all have. I give you thanks that you allow us to come, that you give us your word, that we can come to know you better through it. I give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that guides and directs us, that makes your word applicable and relevant in all cultures, in all contexts. Help us to be faithful as we Try to live out your calling. Give us discernment. Give us clarity. Give us peace. And give us patience. There's a reason that the church has wrestled with this for so long. If it were clear, it would not have continued as it has. So God, be with us. Open our minds and open our hearts to what you would have us know and who you would have us be. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for coming and uh, like I said, I am available. Uh, you can call or text or email. Um, if you'd like to have an in-depth conversation, if you could schedule that, um, <laughs> just so that I can mentally prepare. Um, if you stop by and I'm in the middle of something else, I might not be fully ready for that kind of level of conversation. <laughs>